welcome to another episode of Throwing Bagels. Kevin Mooney here with you alongside Chris Douglas. Hey, Chris. Kevin, how are you? It's been a hey, bit. Hey, it feels like it's it's been a while. We, I think the last time we spoke, we actually had some of our teams in the playoffs. Not not anymore. Right? Not even close. <laughs> Jason Hamo with us as well. Hey, Jason. Hello, Kevin. How are you doing? I am. I am great. How? What's new with you? Uh, living the life, man. Living yeah. the life. It's all we can do. <laughs> On this edition of, of Throwing Bagels, we have uh, a very special guest. Um, he is the executive director of the New York State Public High School Athletic Association. It's uh, Dr. Robert Zayas. And, and Dr. Zayas, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate you guys having me on. You're here because recently the uh, New York State Public High School Athletic Association held its executive committee meeting, and uh, there was a lot to discuss uh, at that meeting, one of which was the new spectator sportsmanship regulation. So, and basically to, to boil it all down is that people who act in an unruly fashion at games basically have now a, a three strikes and you're out policy it could be less than that it could you know depending on the severity of the issue but this this came out in in a meeting earlier this month so dr zayas if you could uh, what led to the development of, of this particular regulation yeah this is something that our membership has been discussing for about a year now and we have a sportsmanship committee that has representation from all 11 sections and the sportsmanship committee really felt that something like this had to be brought in and considered and ultimately approved by our executive committee um, because we have standards for coaches, we have standards for student athletes, but we had no standards for spectators or no expectations or regulation pertaining to spectators. And that's the reason why it was ultimately proposed and discussed over the course of several meetings. It was actually, uh, I think, discussed for the very first time uh, back in July and then um, there was some questions and some concerns expressed by the membership. So that's the reason why we continue to tweak it and revise mm -hmm. it and amend it, and then ultimately settled upon the verbiage that was approved on May 3rd. So um, as um, you just explained, Kevin, it basically gives expectations and a regulation. So that way athletic directors and site supervisors at a game have something to rely upon if a fan is just being completely unruly. We understand, and we're not trying to do away with um, you know, the entire student body uh, feels that the basketball official made a bad call and everybody kind of moans and groans or boos a little bit. That's that's understandable. That's been part of sports since sports began. But what we're trying to get rid of is that one fan that takes it upon themselves to completely berate and just is unruly, inappropriate. Then it gives this verbiage gives the site administrator or the athletic director the ability to go up to that fan and say, hey, in accordance with the State High School Athletic Association, you, you can't behave like this. This is your first warning. If you do it again, we're going to have to ask you to leave, and then you'll be disqualified from the next uh, contest. So you, you can't come. Um, and I think at least it strengthens the stance of the association as it pertains to this particular topic. Uh, and Dr. Zayas, um, go ahead. Well, and and just to, to follow up, one of the – if it gets to that point where someone is removed, they they have to take a, a, a NFHS parent credential course as part of that? They could take that course and then come to the next game, or they oh. can decide to go ahead and suffer the penalty and be prohibited from attending the next game. Okay. Uh, Dr. Zayas, I'm a Section 3 high school soccer referee, so I've heard it from 
spectators for, you know, as long as I've been doing this. Will the new spectator sportsmanship policy include the same punishment of offensive or derogatory languages used towards coaches, referees, or even fellow spectators? Yeah, it would be about the same. But the thing that we've been trying to stress, and I've done quite a few media interviews on this topic over the course of the last couple of weeks since it was approved, and I've tried to reiterate to the media that it's not in a sequential order, meaning that if the behavior is so outrageous that the athletic director can go up and say, you're gone, um, we don't have to give them a first warning. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, we've seen cases where it does rise to that. Um, But the other message that I've been trying to convey to the media is this policy was really enacted and approved for the few. It's not the majority of high school fans that are coming to games and and don't know how to behave. It's the ones that are confused as to what the purpose of high school sports are. They lose perspective and they think that their son or daughter is actually going to get that full ride division one college scholarship, even though that uh, we're just hoping they might be able to make the intramural team once they make to the college level. So um, I think there's an awful lot of confusion out there. And I think some of that through youth sports, I have a theory that I really think youth sports kind of breeds the craziness that we sometimes see in sports today because parents are spending so much time and so much money on their son and or daughter participating in club sports from the you know very young age that by the time they've reached modified or high school athletics, they've already been participating in that particular sport for 10 years. Uh, mm-hmm. No longer is the family taking a family vacation. No longer are they doing things as a family that they would really like to do. They're eating dinner at 10 o'clock at night, four days a week because of practice and hitting hitting private lessons or whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. And now all of a sudden the umpire calls my son out third strike looking. And you know what? That's impossible because I've just got done paying $5,000 over the course of last year for him to have a private hitting instructor. There's no way he could possibly strike out. So I think sometimes uh, the amount of investment, not just from time, but also financially um, has really led to some of the craziness that we unfortunately see. And I think there's also um, a lot of confusion as to the reality of college scholarships today. Um, I've talked to some parents that are just convinced that their son's going to get the full ride division one college scholarship. And they don't understand really the dynamics of college scholarships or how college scholarships work that on a, on a baseball team, I believe they give 12 full ride scholarships. So very few Mm -hmm. guys on a college baseball team are even getting a full ride. Most of them are getting, you know, books and fees maybe, or, um, you know, room and board. And that's about it. Um, I, I ran division two track out in East Texas And, uh, you know, it's not the end of the earth, but you can certainly see it from there. And I ran on a $500 athletic scholarship. And so, I mean, I think that's the the reality of what a lot of kids ultimately end up experiencing. Um, The the top echelon of kids are the ones that are getting the full ride division one scholarships. And really, that's kind of like the the one percent of the one percent that are making it to that level. Definitely. As far as uh, the the one game suspension and and or taking the course, uh, is that a deterrent for like repeat uh, offenders, if you will? Like if it's the same individual and there's like the uh, a track record of this individual, you know, misbehaving at sporting events, is is there any further punishment beyond that one game suspension or the course? Well, I think at any point in time, a school district can take the action that they feel is most appropriate. And that would always I'd always advise them to consult with their school district attorney. If if a fan is just not getting it, if every single game, every other game they're having to address the behavior, then that would really be up to a school district to address um, in, in, you know, in consultation with their school board or, or, or legal counsel. Mm-hmm. 
has there ever been a consideration for having a, a mandate for schools uh, in all sections to have a uh, a security escort for referees to and from the parking lot? Uh, I've had incidents where spectators have followed us out and, you know, school, thankfully school administrators have been there and it's, it's not really been an issue, but for the few incidents that have happened, uh, has there been any consideration for that to be a mandatory thing for all schools? That hasn't really been discussed. And I think, as you just mentioned, the majority of the time, the site administrator or athletic director is aware of what's going on. They can kind of see the temperature of the game rising and realize that maybe the officials being unfairly targeted and therefore, they're going to go ahead and, and assign somebody to to walk out to, to the car with you or, um, you know, hold you off on walking out until the, you know, the the fan base has kind mm-hmm. of left the facility or left the parking lot. So I think we have some incredible and I'm not just saying this because I'm in New York, but our athletic administrators are some of the top in the country. And I think that's one thing that I do appreciate that they are paying attention while the game is going on. If, if a parent or or student or whomever it is has to take this course. How are you enforcing that they actually took the course? How are you, are if that's what they chose to do? Yeah. So that would be up to them to provide a certificate of completion to the athletic director or school district after they've completed it. And then the school district would go ahead and monitor that and keep that on file. Um, and that's one thing that we often talk about with, um, with all of our rules and regulations is we rely upon our schools to enforce those rules and regulations. I mean, I have a staff of, of nine, including myself. We can't possibly enforce and regulate every single rule of the association. Our sections do not have the ability either from a resource perspective to go ahead and enforce it. We rely upon the member schools to enforce those, the rules and regulations that have been ultimately approved by them. So it's it's up to the school basically to say, if you want to come back into this court tonight, you have to show me a certificate that you passed that exactly that course, basically. Got it. Or wait till the next game. And, uh, and then they would be prohibited for that contest from returning. So I guess you, you kind of answered my next question. Who's enforcing the, these, uh, the regulations at high school games. So it's the administrators of the high school basically are, who are going to be enforcing this. Yeah. And to Chris's perspective, as a high school official, we do not want officials to be the ones that are going into the stand saying, you need to go ahead and lead this game. Um, you're acting outrageous. That is not the role uh, or the responsibility of an official. And that's one thing that we have had to convey to our officials organizations um, on a few occasions, because we don't want the officials to have to be the spectator police. Um, so that's something that we've really been trying to get that word out as well, um, because I think sometimes the officials are already in a tough per, you know, predicament and the last thing we want them to do is feel like they have to then go into the stands. If they are noticing something, their course of action would be to go ahead and notify the site administrator or the athletic director. That's something I was going to to bring up is, is we've been instructed as officials to go to the site administrator or the head coach of the home team so that that unruly spectator can be removed or talked to or whatever the course may be. Yeah, you have a hard enough job of officiating. We 100%. don't want you to even make it that much more difficult. We want you to stick around. We don't want you to uh, <laughs> consider retirement too soon. Yeah, you're lucky I love soccer, so I think I got another 20 years ago. <laughs> so they're expected to basically – are they expected to kind of stop the game at you know and say, listen, you need to go talk to that guy right there? Is that- yeah, I mean, I think there, there again, the regulation isn't all-encompassing. I think it's going to be based upon the severity of what's going on. It could be done at a timeout. Um, if you're basketball or volleyball, um, you know, at halftime of a soccer game, um, if it's not that severe or if it does rise to that level, then maybe the uh, stoppage of play is warranted at that point in time. And 
could could game forfeits or some other type of penalty that you know more extreme be on the table um in in certain cases you know like saying a team can't even can't make the playoffs or something like that no we haven't went to that extent i would hate for kids to be negatively impacted as a result of an unruly fan or spectators um, but the regulation that was approved does say that the game is going to be stopped until that individual leaves the facility. And I think at that point in time, hopefully they'll be shamed into leaving um, because nothing's going to happen until they leave in accordance with the regulation that was approved. So would they um, kind of, I mean, would the administrator or could the administrator go as far as, you know, calling the police if someone adamantly refuses to leave, you know, would yeah, they... they could, they could. And again, it's not going to happen often, but I think it would be um, it would be naive for us to think that it's not possible in this day and age for some of the things that we've seen. Thankfully, we haven't experienced anything too outrageous from an interscholastic high school setting, but we have seen some instances right here in New York of, of club basketball um, coaches assaulting officials. Um, so those are concerns that we have, and we really need to work together as a community to make sure those types of things are not part of the high school setting. The the committee or the association has spent time tweaking this particular regulation. So now that it's been made public, uh, how have administrators across the state, how have they embraced uh, this particular regulation? I think they've been very appreciative of it. We saw some really positive responses on social media. It doesn't take effect to the fall, mm-hmm. um, but we got it approved now in May to go ahead and start implementing and, and really promoting for the fall season. But I, I've, I've seen an awful lot of positivity around the approval of this regulation. Uh, and another uh, outcome of the executive committee meeting was uh, really uh, an emphasis on getting rid of derogatory or racially explicit language that really creates a, a hostile environment at at competitions and 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 I assume that that's been embraced wholly as well by by administrators most certainly I mean we've mm-hmm. been working on our diversity equity inclusion for a few years now um, unfortunately covid like a lot of things it, it yeah. really derailed us and our attention went elsewhere as it did with a lot of organizations, but I'm happy to report that we have a DEI committee and a statewide representation. They've met on two occasions and they're going to be a standing committee within the organization structure now. And they brought four great proposals forward for consideration. And that's what we want is our diversity and equity inclusion committee to really look at things through a different lens uh, with a different perspective. And I think that's an important step in the right direction for our organization as a whole. Absolutely. 2023, uh, marks the 100th anniversary of of the founding of the NYS uh, PHSAA. How influential has this organization been on on high school sports with, throughout the state? I mean, it's been I- incredible. I mean, I had the opportunity. I think I'm the fifth executive director in the history of the association mm. because very early on there wasn't full time executive directors. They were more part time secretaries. Um, that kind of led the operation of the organization. Um, but if you look at our history, it's really interesting because we're we're updating a book that was written about the history of the association. It's interesting to see some of the things that we're doing today that were really started back in 1923. I mean, if you look at our transfer rule, 100 years ago, the leadership of this organization felt it was important to look at the transfer situation to prevent mm. kids from moving from school to school. 
and we're still being sued about our transfer rule today. Um, we go to court all the time to defend the transfer rule. So um, it's interesting. Membership dues was something that almost immediately upon the fine, the kind of the organization being launched, um, they talked about how was it going to be funded? Well, it was going to be funded by schools paying membership dues to be part of the organization. And on May 3rd, we talked about membership dues increase for the first time in a decade. So it's just interesting to see the history of the organization and how far we've come and how much we've continued to grow as an organization. Certainly. And it's, I mean, developing into the one of the, the, the best athletic associations that you can find in this country. So I think there's been a lot of tremendous work done uh, from that perspective. Well, and we have an incredible staff right now, yeah. but there were incredible people that became came before us and there's going to be incredible people that come after us. Um, but I just think that when you really look at the history of the association, it's always been student focused and it's always been yeah. what's in the best interest of the students for which we serve. We have the incredible privilege right now. And that's one thing that I always try to keep in perspective as the executive directors. We work on behalf of almost 600,000 student athletes. We're the third largest high school athletic association in the country. Um, when it comes to participation, we have almost, you know, 800 member schools. Uh, it's a huge responsibility. It's one that we, we take very seriously. And we realize each and every day we're working on behalf of over half a million kids. They're relying upon us to do the work that we do to provide them with participation opportunities that are going to be beneficial and that are really going to have, have the ability to alter their life and, uh, have an incredible influence upon what they do in their future. Definitely. You present at national conferences frequently, um, you know, as, as part of your uh, your position there at the association. And, and one topic you've been talking about recently has been name image likeness. Uh, so what impact is NIL having on high school athletics in particular? It's interesting when the NCAA lifted their NIL rules in July of 2021, I believe, um, we went to work immediately um, and we're the first high school athletic association in the country to revise our amateur rule to give students at the high school level the ability to earn money and to really monetize off of who they are. And the reason why is I didn't want to ultimately deny a student the ability to earn money off of their name, image and likeness and then suffer litigation um, as an association or have legislation imposed, as we saw already happening to impact collegiate sports. So we could already see the writing on the wall. And I refer to it as the trickle down effect. If it starts at the professional level, then it's going to start hitting the collegiate level and ultimately filter down to us. And we could see that occurring. So we work, went to work very quickly. We revised our amateur rule as the first state in the country to do that. And basically what we say is a student can earn money off of who they are as long as they do so not in affiliation with their school. So mm. um, I often use a, a graphic that I made my daughter uh, stand in the front yard holding a, bo a bottle of a Powerade um, for a presentation that I was going to do. And then I show her standing in her track and field singlet. And it says Shenandoah across, you know, her chest in, in the school uh, colors. And that's her school uniform. And I use that as an example when I do these presentations and I show her and I say, this student athlete is in violation of our amateur rule right now because she's wearing her school uniform. And then I click the next slide and it's her standing with the same exact bottle of Powerade um, in a white sweatshirt. And now she's no longer in violation of the uh, amateur rule because she's not affiliated to her school. It can be that simple. Some state associations have followed our lead. I'm happy to report, I think 25 state associations now have revised their amateur rule after we revised ours. Um, and some state associations have taken it to the extent, New Jersey being the most uh, closely 
um, located state that they actually go into detail as far as what's what types of products students cannot endorse mm-hmm. or sponsor. We didn't take that step because we say as long as you're not doing it in affiliation to the school, then we don't have any concerns. And then you should really work with your own uh, attorney or whoever that may be to make sure that you're signing a contract that's beneficial to you as a student athlete. There are concerns, though. I mean, if a student athlete were to sign a 10-year deal with Nike to be a Nike-sponsored athlete, and they are that top echelon of kids that we were talking about a few minutes ago, then that really limits their choice of where they're going to be able to go to school if they're obligated to um, honor that contract as they enter the collegiate level. So um, there are concerns with it. And one of the things I often also talk about when I when I speak about NIL is I'm hopeful that our NIL rule is not the same as it is today in 10 years. We should constantly be looking at revising and improving our rules. And that's not just our NIL rules or our amateur rule. But that's all of our rules and regulations as an association. Um, our handbook should be constantly changing because we're constantly evolving. Did you mention Shenandoah High School? I did. That's where we live in Clifton Park. Yeah. South see, of Saratoga. You know, as a Shaker <laughs> high school graduate, that name just does not resonate with me at all. Well, in, <laughs> in my defense, we moved with about uh, five weeks of uh, notice when we moved to uh, upstate New York, never been to upstate New York before we moved from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and, uh, and just happened to stumble upon Clifton Park and, um, I bought a house without my wife ever seeing it, which I do not recommend, um, but <laughs> pretty well so far. But we've been in the house now for 11 years. Anytime anything goes wrong with the house, it's my fault. Anytime it's great. Of it's, course. Uh, you know, it was, it was wonderful, wonderful pur- purchase, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so we live in the Clifton park community and it's a great place. My kids love it. My wife loves it. And, uh, it's a really a great community. Yeah. In fairness, uh, and in all seriousness, it's actually a really good school district. So you're making out really well there. I went to college with a lot of people from the Albany area, and I knew a bunch of people that went to one of these two high rival high schools. Uh, was on when we were in college. So they would crush us in soccer every single year, every year. I've always heard they were the powerhouse of. Uh, they were now Shaker of, of upstate yeah. New York and New York State as well. Yeah, they have some great programs. They really do. What was your experience um, like as a teacher and administrator um, in Texas and New Mexico? How did that, how was, how was that? Is it, how much different is it than New York? I just think the organizations are different. When I was, I grew up in Texas and ultimately started my education career teaching middle school and and high school and coaching in central Texas for three years, and then had the opportunity to go out to Albuquerque to go to graduate school and uh, really didn't plan on uh, teaching or um, uh, having a, a, I, I call it a real job. I was going to go to graduate school. And I, at the time I was going to try and train for triathlons. Um, I was in my mid twenties and I uh, had been racing in Austin, Texas. And I thought this will be a great opportunity go to graduate school, train at high altitude and then reality set in when I didn't have any money coming in. So uh, again, I was in my mid twenties and my parents were asking me what I was going to do for health insurance. And I said, Oh, I'll figure that out. You know, when you're in your mid twenties, you don't think about stuff like that. Um, and so I actually started looking for a teaching job when I got to Albuquerque before, um, before graduate school started and there were no teaching jobs left. And in the classified ads of the Albuquerque journal, um, I was looking for a job that was going to give me the ability to make a little money while I was going to graduate school. And I stumbled upon a classified ad that said they were hiring a communications director at the New Mexico High School Activities Association and thought, I'll apply for that job and see what happens. And that's ultimately how 
I got my foot in the door and and uh, rose to the level of associate director before moving out to uh, Albany, New York in uh, in the fall of 2012. But I would say that high school sports, the, the student athletes are um, committed just like they were in Texas, just like they were in New Mexico. I think it's it really doesn't matter for the geography, um, but I, I think you see throughout this entire country uh, really high school athletics are so much geared by the coaching staffs that are available and the athletic administrators that are overseeing those programs. And I mean, you, if you look at throughout the state of New York, the incredible athletic directors that we have and the incredible coaching staffs that we have, um, I think that's the reason why we have some of the best student athletes and the most successful high school programs in the country. Now, obviously you hear about Texas high school athletics being one of the top uh, athletic programs in the country with that of you know, a California and a Florida, a lot of D1 athletes come out of those states, but they have a lot of schools, a lot of kids playing at a very high level. But I would say that, you know, the top echelon of New York kids is the same as the top echelon of California, Texas, or Florida student athletes. I was going to kind of mention that you do hear a lot about, you know, it's because it's a year round thing, you know, down in, in the South, right. Or in the West coast, especially in, you know, Southern California, where you can play, baseball, football, basketball, you know, especially all year round without, you know, worrying about the snow or the rain canceling games or anything like that, especially for baseball, more so for baseball than, than other sports. But, um, and we, we discussed that because Chris is a soccer guy and he's always like, I can't believe they're not playing baseball right now. It's pouring outside. (laughs) I mean, you should have seen some of the games I did last year in the pouring rain (laughs) and the snow. My, my next question was really like how, coming from texas right how big really big is high school football in the state of texas like you hear the stories and everything like that you see the the movies and things like that but is it is it is it portrayed accurately is it that crazy yeah it's crazy i mean high school football in in texas is just it it is another level of, of high school football i mean it's it's incredible i had the privilege of when i was doing my student teaching i was out in east texas and um, I didn't run cross country and track my senior year. And I, I volunteered to coach football at the high school where I was doing my student teaching. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And, and because I say that because I was doing student teaching and I was putting another 40 or 50 hours a weekend, just coaching, um, <laughs> and not, not necessarily coaching, but just helping or assisting the, the coaching staff. Um, and they were one of the best high school football programs in the state at that time in their classification, the year after I left, they actually won the 3A state title in the state of Texas, which if you look at the number of teams that they're competing against in football at that level, it's just, it's incredible. Look at 200,000 people that will attend their state football championships, because I think they offer up, they're up to 12 classifications of football. Now they play at 18 T stadium. Um, I had the opportunity to attend the UIL or Texas football championships a few years ago, right before the pandemic. And it's just an incredible experience. And um, it, it is, it's just another level of high school football. What town was that in where the, uh, where you coached? Uh, Commerce, Texas, way out in East Texas and uh, had the, the, the chance to um, learn and just experience high school football from one of the legends of, of, of high school football, Steve Lineweaver mm-hmm. in, in East Texas, just a, he really is one of those guys that uh, people talk about all throughout the state. And I didn't know it at the time when I was doing my student teaching, but it was just a great opportunity to experience high school football at its finest. 
I think some of the high school football stadiums down there would put some of the college football stadiums up here to shame. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, they have $60 million stadiums in Allen, <laughs> Texas. It's just oh incredible. Uh, I mean, ridiculous. It, and when we were when we were coaching and we were going, when I was doing my student teaching, we would leave for away football games and they would let school out and all the kids, elementary school and middle school kids would line the streets and police escorts out of town, police escorts into town. It, it was just, it was incredible. That's you see those cool. in the movies. That's what you yes. see in the movies, like that oh, kind yeah. of stuff. And you're always like, is that real? Is that really happening? <laughs> Definitely. I, I never got any police escorts when I was playing high school sports. <laughs> no, no neither. I. <laughs> so uh, Dr. says, and it sounded like you just kind of uh, almost on a whim took a trip up to New York and, and wound up uh, staying here. I mean, just what was that path? What was your decision or what led to your decision to come to upstate New York? I, I mean, at the time I was um, 36 years old and um, I had known the former executive director in New York. Her name was Nina Van Erk. I'd served on some national committees with her. Um, and I was sitting at my desk in New Mexico and I had a job announcement emailed to me from our national organization that said the New York executive director position was open. And I knew Nina Van Erk and, and I called my wife and said, what do you think if I apply for the job in, in New York? And she said, what are you talking about? What job? And I said, well, the executive director job is open. I said, don't worry. We're not moving to New York. I said, uh, you know, these jobs are political. You got to know people. You got to have some influence. You got to have served on some boards and committees. Um, I said, so don't worry. I said, it would just be great if I could get an interview uh, for a job of that magnitude. I said, I'll, I'll be 30. I'm 36 years old. They're not going to hire me as the youngest person in the country to have this position. Um, so I said, don't worry about it. If I get an interview, that'd be great. So they called me a few weeks later and uh, offered me uh, an interview. And uh, so um, but they said they didn't have they weren't planning on interviewing anybody from out of state. So they said, you ultimately have to pay for your own way to get up here for an interview. So on about five days notice, um, as my wife looked over my shoulder, uh, cringing, I bought like a thousand dollar plane ticket and uh, booked, booked a, a, a hotel and came up and interviewed just to get the experience. And um, it was it was incredible walking into a room, not knowing one person and uh, just having the ability to talk about my passion and enthusiasm for high school sports, not knowing any of the rules and regulations, but knowing that this is ultimately where I think I can have influence and impact. And um, at the end of the interview, one of the stories that uh, I like to tell is at the end of, end of the interview, I knew that I was young. I knew I was going to be one of the younger people applying. Um, the board president at the time said, Robert, we want to thank you for interviewing. We want to thank you for coming up to New York um, and, um, and interviewing for this position. And for some reason, I said, well, I didn't come here to interview. I came here to be the next executive director. And as, as soon as I said it, I was like, what are you doing? You just ruined the entire interview. And I think uh, that ultimately showed people that I was really here uh, to try to make an impact and try to have influence upon, you know, over half a million student athletes. So I uh, got a second interview and my wife came up to New York with me uh, to interview for that. We drove around and looked at a few communities and ultimately stumbled upon Clifton Park. But the learning curve was steep when I got the position. We had about five weeks to move. We had two, our daughters were, were two and five at the time. Wow. Um, so uh, my wife was just on the verge of becoming a school administrator in uh, New, New Mexico when we left. So that was a huge move for her. Um, and so I couldn't have done any of this if, without her support. I, I was just trying to finish up my doctorate at the time. So I still had to take comprehensive exams and study for comprehensive exams in a, in a, a two week period, which is not ideal. 
Um, but it's been an absolutely incredible experience. But um, walking into a room for the first year to two years and not knowing anybody, that was probably the biggest uh, learning aspect uh, of my professional career was just navigating um, how difficult that was, not knowing the rules and regulations and having to explain the rules and regulations or having to answer questions about them. Um, but it's been an absolutely, I mean, this is a dream job for me. I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And uh, I, I really do enjoy it each and every day, even though a lot of days are absolutely crazy. If a role came up in like Texas, you know, near near your hometown or or Albuquerque, would you look at, at that and, and think about going back down there? Would you, would you do you, are you kind of entrenched yourself in New York at this point? I mean, we love upstate New York. My wife sells real estate. She's got a thriving business going right now. And my kids love upstate New York. So I, I really, I consider this home. Um, so, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine doing anything other than what I'm doing right now. And so no one has seen snow ever in their lives before coming upstate i mean we had a little <laughs> snow in uh, albuquerque but not enough to need a, a snowblower um mm. <laughs> i mean one of the one of the crazy the first big snowfall mm. that we got when we first moved to uh upstate new york um you know i was all excited because i bought a snowblower so i went out in the driveway and cranked it up and uh, my wife and daughters were looking out the window and i went all the way down the driveway one time and turned around, the snow's flying to the side of the driveway. And I thought, I got this. And the snowblower died. And I was like, <laughs> what happened? Well, you know, a guy from Texas doesn't operate snowblowers very often. I didn't take it off choke. So oh, no. I had no idea. <laughs> so but uh, so that, that was a hard lesson to learn very quickly. <laughs> oh, man. Your wife and your kids are probably like, we're not going out there. Are you kidding me? It's too cold outside. We're going to stay inside. Shoveling? What do you mean? <laughs> Yeah, so that was definitely an adjustment. But I mean, now I, I consider us, you know, New Yorkers. Where I mean, my kids have lived in in New York for for the better part of their life, and yeah. um, we've been here now eleven years, and uh, it really is home. We love it. This is, it's a great example, I think, of of ga gambling on yourself. Really, I mean, there could have been opportunities for you to say, "No, I shouldn't apply for this. I still have my doctorate to do. No, this is not the right time." But you keep saying it's not the right time, and and then you'll never, you may never have that opportunity again. So I think that's that's really a great story of of do, of knowing that this is something you really wanted to do, and just said the heck with everything else. I'm going to go for this, and and it really it really turned out for the best for you. Yeah, when you get the opportunity to be one of 51 throughout the country, you don't pass it up. Um, yeah. And really, to have these types of jobs, it's it. I, I really I, I do consider it an honor and a privilege. And, um, and I never, I, I try and always to keep in perspective, just, you know, never forget where you came from, I think is one of the greatest lessons that I always try to remember is, you know, I remember teaching middle school and high school, and that was a fun time period in my career. But um, back then, I would have never dreamed to have the opportunity to do what I'm doing today. So I, I take full advantage of it and really try to, to value it in each and every day. And I'll tell you, as long as that, uh, that interview went well. If if I if I was the person interviewing you and you had said that to me, I would have been like, "You're hired <laughs> right away." Like, that, that, like yep. the, the to show passion like that, like that's that's to me that's like gives it get gets you like extra points. Well, I mean, and I do. I mean, I I came in with with a great deal of confidence, and uh, I I don't feel like I have an ego, but I do feel like I have a lot of confidence and. Now that I've been in it for 11 years, it's it's crazy that I'm now ranked ninth in the country for tenure. 
with all executive directors because it is a position that does tend to turn over pretty quickly. Um, you don't get these positions at the age of 36 for in most states throughout the country. You get them at the age of 56 or 66. So a lot of times executive directors will serve five to 10 years and then then they retire um, so very seldom do you see a lot of people, although I, I'm hoping that maybe I started a trend because there are, you know, a few states that have uh, taken, um, you know, on younger executive directors with less experience, but a great deal of passion and enthusiasm and energy, um, because I think the job has changed so much um, in the last decade, and it's changed even more uh, since COVID. It's no longer oftentimes a, a, an athletic administrator position. A lot of times it's a political position that you have to be willing and able to navigate um, not only on a daily basis, but sometimes an hourly basis. And I really enjoy the uncertainty of the job each and every day. And a younger person can give a different perspective than someone who's, you know, in their fifties or sixties can, right. When, you know, in a role, you're a little bit closer to the high school age when you that you remember you know doing things versus someone who's 60 years out, out or yeah something well, I don't, like don't want to not I don't want to knock being 50 or 60 because I'm on my <laughs> way here pretty quick so <laughs> you know I think you know you can go ahead and and you know have the energy and passion at the beginning and then merely take mm -hmm. the expertise and the knowledge and mm -hmm. uh and make that your your strong point as you approach 50 um because I I feel like that's uh it's quickly coming upon me does the turnover um sometimes go where people just move on to like college and do that and do things like now, that in college or no very rarely do you see people take the leap from a uh, high school administrator or executive director to college um a, a friend of ours uh went from associate director in texas and now i believe she's chief of staff for university of nebraska football but those are really rare things that you see happen throughout the country um, just because high school is so different than that of college athletics, um, two completely different worlds where I really think a lot of collegiate athletics today at the administrative level is really based upon fundraising. Um, mm. And uh, but again, I, I don't know a lot about that world because I'm so entrenched with the high school setting. I, just uh, one final observation, at least from from my perspective. I mean, your your role as an executive director, the the roles of different high schools as high school sports administrators, even the roles as teachers. There's so much work that that these men and women do day in and day out that goes unseen by students, by parents, by people sitting in the stands. I mean, can you take us through that? Like, just just what is what is a day like? What is how much work exactly? It is being done behind the scenes, you know, that, that these people do every day. Well, I know for my staff, we're planning state championships year round. Mm -hmm. um, we are a 12 month um, positions. We don't take summers off. Um, so we're planning like for state base baseball championships uh, that are coming up, softball, track and field that those championships have been in the planning process for over a year, sometimes multiple years where we sign contracts for venues and hotels three or four years in advance. So um, a lot of people don't realize that. And I think COVID really shined a light on just how much work goes into hosting a state championship because um, to revise just small um, items of a, of a state championship can be very big tasks. Now, oftentimes we have to do it because it's weather related, um, but we have a staff of, like I said earlier, nine people, including myself, and everybody has their own responsibilities in an effort to get ready for state championships. But we really try to focus on the details when it comes to hosting state championships. One of the things that we do is every student athlete that wins a state championship gets a championship t-shirt. 
And uh, you see colleges do that. You see the NFL do that all the time or, or you know, professional sports where you win a state championship, everybody gets a, a shirt. Well, one of the things that we do, just to tell you how, how much detail we go into, is we determine what sizes we're going to order for each championship shirt. And each shirt is branded on the back with the date and the, and the sport logo. So when you go to our volleyball state championships, we don't hand out just you know, 20 extra large shirts when you win a state championship. We want the kids to wear it. So we actually have went into detail and tried to figure out how many smalls is each team going to get? How many mediums is each team? How many large? So we try to predict based upon the sport um, what we need. And that's just a level of detail that people don't realize. And really, they shouldn't have any knowledge of. But we want to make sure that when a student athlete's given a championship shirt, they're going to wear it. Because if if you're uh, if you're a 125 pound cross country runner, you're not going to wear an extra large shirt. Um, and we don't bring a lot of extra large shirts to the state cross country championships. Whereas for the basketball championships and football, um, we definitely do. So that's just one example of the amount of detail that goes into organizing these state championships to make sure that really there's no stone left unturned and um, and the student athletes, the coaches and the fans are going to have a great experience. And that's one of our focus as a state association is hosting those state championships to the best of our ability. Dr. Zayas, thank you so much uh, for joining us. We, we really appreciate it. And, and we, we had a great time. The time flew by. I'm looking at it. We're yeah. already, uh, I guess, almost 45 minutes. So uh, <laughs> that's always the sign of a good interview and, and appreciate the opportunity to come on. Um, it was it was great talking with you guys. And that was Dr. Robert Zayas, the executive director of the New York State Public High School Athletic Association. And that was that was just a great interview, guys. It was. Yeah. I mean, very enlightening. So much information on, on what they're doing, what their plans are to do. You know, amazing. I, I love the story about him getting the job like that's just yeah. a classic story right there. <laughs> I mean, it's something I would never have the confidence to do myself, but, no. uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I guess that's the way to do it. Like now I, I, this isn't just an interview for me. I'm coming here to take your job. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. That's a, it's like, that's the ultimate, like mic drop. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's an example of what have you got to lose? Right. right. Like what's the worst that they can say to you? No, that's the right. worst that they can tell you. And that's so the thing some people, right. And that's the thing some people, and like Chris said, like, would we have the comp, would I have the confidence to do something like that? Like, that's the ultimate, like, you just, you know, you never know until you try type thing, you mm -hmm. know? And if they say no, they say no, you know? I mean, I got mm -hmm. so many rejection letters after college. So, you know, for me, it was like, oh, just another one in the mail today, yep. you know? Mm -hmm. It it's yeah, and my career as a producer for radio station radio shows, I was getting no all the time. Like I would get no eighty percent of the time would be no, nah. Even this, even booking for this podcast, sometimes we'll get a no. But we've been we've been very lucky. We've had yeah. a lot of great guests, and they've all said, "Yeah, when can I do it? Let me know." So it's it's been fortunate uh, with this podcast that we've had some really great guests. I think I've no gotten along the way. Yeah, I've I've gotten a bunch of no's and no answers. So yeah, <laughs> I, I'm the unluckiest of the three of us here when we're trying to book a guest. I think Kevin's but, had the best luck so far. Absolutely. Well, what can I say? I I, I send uh, I said I cross my fingers a lot when I'm sending these things out. Maybe that's working. <laughs> <laughs> It is good that the association is taking measures to really protect, pre prevent games from 
totally getting out of hand. And the, the worst part is when a parent is out of control, mm-hmm. their son or their daughter is probably, they probably want to find a hole to crawl into because they had nothing to do with it, you know? Yeah. And, and now they're yep. forced to, to stand there and watch their, their parent act in that fashion. And it's just embarrassing for them. It's embarrassing for everyone. And now, now there's in the fall, there will be measures in place to mm-hmm. kind of prevent that from, you know, getting worse. Yeah. And you bring up an excellent point. Cause I can, I can actually give you a firsthand account of a game that I refereed uh, last fall uh, where a parent did just that embarrassed their child. I mean, this is, this was a JV game. Like it's not, Come on. Th- this is not a world cup match. Right. So, and the, and the poor kid, I mean, he was letting me have it too, but anytime his kid was on the ball, just, just ripping her for like, if it was like a errant pass or she turned the ball over or whatever the case may be, he was all over her, all over her. And mind you, the majority of the time with parents and I, I, it's males, it's the dads. And I'm not going to say some moms don't do it because, you know, you'll hear like, and, and doc, like Dr. Zaya said, like a crowd will get on you if you make a bad call. And that's part of the game. And that's totally fine. And it's totally acceptable, especially if, if the referee makes a mistake. And by the way, we're human. Just keep that in mind. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But no, it's unacceptable. Chris. <laughs> we're robots. <laughs> robots with a whistle. Um, but, you know, it, it, this specific game I'm talking about where where this this poor kid was just horrified. You know, anytime I, I, I ran by her, well, she was just mortified. And the thing is, is like when when the two teams switch sides of the field, like he went, he took his chair from one side of the field to the other side of the field so he can be closer, not only to me, but to also his daughter. I mean, that's not that's not being there to support your kid, right? That's just being there to be a jerk. Well, and, and it's ridiculous. It goes into what, what Dr. Zayas was kind of saying a little bit, like people think their kid is going to go D1, you know? Yes. Like, my kid's yes. the greatest. Like my my kid... I I know my kid is the greatest. My, I spent you know five thousand dollars to have them for right. five months of of lessons, <laughs> yeah. and there's no way that my kid can can strike out. You know what I mean? It, right. You know, it's yeah. People people it's, have taken it to a new level. I don't remember this when we were younger. I don't remember well, this bad, this bad when we were younger. Like my dad yeah. used to yell, but he wasn't yelling at, at like umpires or or referees or things like that. My mm-hmm. dad was just like yelling at me to do things, to be like, <laughs> right. just do something to, to be like, swing the bat, you know, or like, well, he was, but it wasn't like, it wasn't old. So in like where you, you were, you know, it was killing me or anything like that. Like, it wasn't, yeah. you know, detrimental. I mean, granted, sometimes I was like, stop it. But, you know, right, right, right. Well, but, but also I think sometimes like, at least for me, like when I was playing soccer in high school, like I blocked all that out. So I, I never really noticed what was going on. I even blocked my coach out most of the times, <laughs> you know, because that I mean, that's that, you know, that's what you do. You're just focused on the game. But I don't know that it's changed. But I think what's happened is I think more people have this sense of entitlement where they think it's OK to just say anything. And I, we've seen that as examples in the pros as well. I mean people dumping popcorn on Kyrie Irving's head when he's going into the dressing room. Like mm-hmm. who does that? Like, what, what are you thinking? Like, do, you know, it's, there's nothing going on up here in the brain. Uh, and actually, as a matter of fact, I saw something today. Uh, there was a, I, there was an incident that happened in England, uh, the Newcastle game uh, over the weekend, in the premier league 
where a, a spectator actually ran onto the field and pushed the manager for Newcastle, and he got a lifetime ban wow, from the good. stadium. So, good. and actually, all stadiums in England, so he can't go to any games. Oh, wow. physically in England. So, you know, I I don't think it'll. I mean, you can't say you don't think, but you never know. But I hope it never gets to that point with high school athletics here. No, definitely not. That's. That's that's pretty crazy to have but, to even but, go that way. But Jay, route. the but thing is, the thing I, is, I Jay, like we had an incident last year where a spectator came onto the field and confronted a referee. Yeah. And there's been examples, and this happens in basketball more frequently, but there yeah. will be parents that come out onto the court and confront coaches and referees. And it's like, no, you don't have you don't have that right. Like that's mm-hmm. not, and I'm glad and I'm really, really happy that this initiative came to be. Um, and I'm really glad that Dr. Zayas has been working on this for, for more than a year now. And there's that video that, uh, we were just talking about. And I, and I think we, I think it was the same video that, that I had sent you guys earlier today. You know, it looked like a bunch of little, little boys that couldn't have been older than like 10, 10 years old, 11 years old. And it looked like some dad ran on the field screaming at an umpire. Next thing you know, the two, the umpire and the, the father are like fighting on the field. And yeah. like, you saw the kid with at the, at bat. Like first we saw a bunch of kids on that were in the field running off the field in the top mm-hmm. because they they looked scared. The 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 kid that was at bat dropped his bat, didn't know what to do, starts running towards towards where the fight was. Then he like stopped. Like these kids, yeah. you first of all, these kids are like little kids. You're gonna like scar them for life. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. It's yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. You're gonna make them never want to play sports again. Right. And that's I mean, come on, man. We, we're in sport. We love sports, man. That that's such an outlet. It's so it's fun, right? That's mm-hmm. what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be fun. And and just like Doctor Zayas said, sometimes people lose that perspective, and it's you know your kid is not going to be the next you know whatever superstar player for whatever sport. And it, what you said before, malice like malice at the palace. Remember that like <laughs> throwing stuff forget. like you say about with Kyrie, like guy threw a bottle, a can of soda or a cup of soda at at Ron Artest or Artest. And next thing you know, he's in the stands beating up the wrong, <laughs> the wrong yeah, guy. But... Yes. Yes. But and who still, else was, like, was it Steven Jackson? Is that the other Steven Jackson the players yeah. that, so yeah. I think there, there was a story that I heard where Ron Artest asked after, <laughs> after that whole incident in the locker room, do you think we're going to get in trouble? <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I don't think so. I think we're good. It wasn't on <laughs> national television, right? now. <laughs> Man, and that, you know, that's because just because you exchanged money for a ticket does not give you the right to do whatever you want to do. And, you know, and and there was just, I think the other day when the Mets were playing in Cincinnati, there were fans that were throwing baseballs at Jeff McDeal, like for just from the stands, they were just throwing baseballs at him. It was, that's crazy. Like, what are you doing? People throwing batteries you know, on the yeah. fields, you know, in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, hey, I've been known to voice my opinion at baseball games before. Yes. But no. I've never, I've never, I've never ever done anything illegal. Right. I've never thrown anything on the field. I've never done anything. I would never do something like that. I just, I use, I use your old you're fashioned way. Of, you're oh. lying. You threw bagels on the <laughs> <Yeah>. ice. <laughs> I actually never did throw a bagel on the what? ice. No, I couldn't. I was, I was, uh, I never did. We were broadcasting right. games. Never oh. did it. I'm not the hooligan. <laughs> oh, wow. Now I'm a hooligan. 
hopefully someday we'll get to a point where you can just go to the game and enjoy it and you know yeah. joke that the referee or umpires can't see okay fine you know right. get your glasses checked or whatever right. great like the kids but just like, take they, it easy. right it's like he said with the you know with like he doesn't want they don't want to punish high school kids like you know yeah. high school kids are probably you know the thing when you do or college kids when they you know they do those chants and things like that you know what i mean there's nothing wrong with that you know you're chanting mm-hmm. at you know this this ref sucks or whatever like that like that's you know whatever it's it's an, it could be a, you know it's not the worst thing in the world they're not doing no, anything no. to the referee like yeah. you make a call they're not gonna they don't like it yeah. right like it's it's to to be expected that you're gonna get yelled at i don't want to say nicely yelled at like <laughs> like in a you know in a in a nicer way where yeah. no one's no one's attacking you you know verbally you're you know but the wor- if the worst that happens to you as a referee is saying that you know, you stink because you made a call. Like, you know, as long as they're not braiding you, like, really yeah. with barrages of of you know, yeah, words and things like that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, well, I not- you know, I, I was politely told to retire after a game last year, and I was not the youngest referee on the field, so I actually took offense to that. <laughs> and there, there's not a lot of people behind you, Chris. Are there? Uh, unfortunately, uh, I am one of the younger referees in the, in the org, and and, we, and you're we old. Listen, I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting up there, but like, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, on a serious note, we we do need referees. So if there's anyone listening out there that wants to sign up for, uh, you know, to be a high school soccer referee in the fall, get in touch with me. Uh, you can at me anytime and or at the show. Anytime, get in touch with the show, and we're, we're, you know I'll be happy to give you contact info and show you the ropes. And it, you know, it pays pretty decent for for a couple months. You got a nice little side gig, so uh, absolutely, uh, yeah, we definitely need referees, and that's what Doctor Zayas was alluding to uh, during the uh, conversation as well. Is yeah, I mean, we need more of you. I wonder what could happen. Like, can you imagine running out of referees at some point? You wouldn't you be know? able to play sports, right? right? Yeah. You, I'm saying. You just can't. I can't even like that would be crazy, you know, it'd be terrible run out because, you know, certain people obviously get older and they don't want to do it anymore. And then, you know, yeah. people well, retire. I mean, they right. just can't physically do it anymore because exactly. we, we have some we have some guys in the seven in their 70s, believe it or not, that are still running around on a soccer field. Yeah, it's crazy. And soccer of, of all the sports, that's of all like, sports. Yeah. Like of all the sports. That's kind of like the sport, one of the sports that you have to be the most conditioned, you yeah. know, because you're doing you're yeah. a lot more running than any other yeah. sport like basketball. You know, you have two other referees with you, you know, right. baseball, you're pretty much stationary for the most part. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. soccer, there's two referees and in high school soccer, there's usually two, just two referees instead of a three man system. So the only time we use a three man system is in sectionals. So, but in two man system, yeah, we're, we're literally running, uh, on average, probably four to five miles a game, yeah, you know, yeah. and that's only because you're only covering part of the field. Right. So if you were covering the entire field, just, just think about that. You'd be running 10 miles a game easily. Can't imagine that, you know, too much running for me. <laughs> Keeps me in shape. Kevin doesn't. Kevin yeah. Kevin runs the fridge. That's it. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Gets his diet cokes and, and does curls with the diet cokes. That's is what right. you're saying. <laughs> no, I, I, I should point out that as old as Chris is, he's not as old as Jason or I. So that's true. That is true. <laughs> yeah, Kevin enough. Kevin's the oldest one on the show. That's yeah. right. Uh, I'm I'm old <laughs> by a month. Yep. 
All right. Uh, that will do it for this edition of Throwing Bagels. I think our our next one should be should be fun. Uh, just as fun as this one. We're going to talk with an mm-hmm. old friend of ours, uh, the one and only Maria Leaf. So uh, she is currently uh, at the running social the social media at the Washington Examiner. So uh, we'll talk to her about that. It's funny that her job, speaking of us being old, like the newsroom <laughs> she works in is staffed by a bunch of 20 somethings who have no idea what Wheel of Fortune is or, or oh my God. like that. We, that is we can touch shocking. base about all that stuff when, we, when yeah. we speak to her. I'm sure so she'll we, love to talk about that. Yeah, so we will definitely be talking about that with Maria uh, when she, when uh, she chats with us on our next edition of the Throwing Bagels podcast. But for now, take care. Please find us online at throwingbagels.com or you can find us on, and we have links to our Twitter page or Facebook or LinkedIn. It's all on our homepage, throwingbagels.com. And our blog will be coming out next week. So uh, stay tuned for that. I, I'm on deck for that one. So I'll make sure to have something ready for you on uh, this coming Monday morning and uh, we'll see you next time. So um, great job guys, Chris, until next time. Toodles. Toodles. Jason, (laughs) see you next time. See you next time guys. All right. Bye everyone. Bye everyone.